Turn to Philippians chapter 1. We're going to be reading verses 27 through 30. And in this chapter so far, Paul has been focusing on the benefits for the spread of the gospel that came from him being arrested and thrown in jail. He's attempting to strengthen the faith of the Philippian church. And now, as he begins to talk to talk about them and how he expects that he will live so that he can keep helping them, he does something, he turns in a way that might seem discouraging to us, might seem discouraging to them, but once again, just like his description of himself going to jail being a good thing, so this thing that we would see on the surface as a big downer, he insists is also a good thing. And what he says is that he wants them to stand firm and do the hard work of living holy lives as Christians. Now that might be the thing you think is the big downer. I I will grant that that is often seen as a big downer today, but it gets worse in the eyes of the faithless because he then goes on to bring up Three things, opponents, suffering, and conflict in that process. And those are what he insists are actually a good thing. Just like, see, it's sort of like, you know, a comparison to his life where he's been in jail and he's insisting that that's been a good thing for the gospel. So he insists that these things will be good for the Philippians in their faith. Let's stand now for the reading of God's word. Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 through 30. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together For the faith of the gospel, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. For to you it has been granted, for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here to be in me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. We begin to see here a new emphasis on unity and peace in the church. Standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together. And we're going to see a lot more of that theme in this book, in later sermons, Lord willing, we'll be able to spend more time on it. But for now, notice that part of Paul's purpose is to give them 
success in this call to conduct themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. The first thing that you have to see here is that he does not assume that they will be able to do this alone. But he assumes rather that this will come about, this call that he gives them to conduct themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel is going to come about through that fellowship, through that unity is going to happen in the context of a broader people of faith, not a one-on-one kind of relationship with God. Immediately he goes into that bigger picture. It's in the context of the church that he expects them to be able to accomplish this. That's where I'll leave the issue of unity for now. Lord willing, again, in later weeks, we'll spend a lot more time on it because he begins to make it more of the central purpose in his writing starting in the next chapter. But Paul goes on from that and addresses a more immediate concern, which is the fact that they're going to suffer. He addresses a more immediate concern, which is that there's going to be opposition. He knows that there will be opponents. He knows that there's going to be suffering if they pursue conducting themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. He knows that there's going to be conflict. And the first thing that we have to see about him bringing it up, bringing up these sort of bad news kind of things, okay, is that... If we got what we wanted, if he left it out, and that is really what we would prefer, if we were going to edit this book today, you know, an evangelical publisher receives this book, right? Okay, well, let's see. This is not very encouraging. This is not very uplifting. Let's uh, let's just do some redlining here, right? And give something that will sell a little bit better for starters, and also, you know, hey, It's not that we don't believe there will be suffering. It's just that it's, you know, it's not that helpful to point it out to people. Because it's just going to drive them away from the gospel, right? Let's not make it such a downer. Let's make it more of a happy message. If we were to allow that to happen, if we were to start seeking that in the things that we read and in the things that we listen to, what is the consequence of that going to be? Well, the consequence first is going to be shock that bad things start happening. Shock and discouragement that suffering starts coming. If he's correct that it's just going to come, and of course you remember the promise, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. If there's ever been an example of, you know, one thing that can summarize these three words of, uh, let's see, the first one is opponents, suffering, and conflict. Okay, it's the word persecution. You've got them all bundled up together in persecution, right? 
with persecution, with opponents and suffering and conflict, is going to come. The very thing that he's warning them about, alarm. If we don't get warned, and then the suffering comes, then the persecution comes, what's going to happen is we're going to be alarmed, right? Something has gone wrong. This wasn't in the book. It said it was going to be great and happy, and and I was, and now there's the suffering that's come. And so Paul is absolutely unwilling to avoid talking about it. Why? Because he cares about them. That's why. Because he loves them, because he doesn't want them to fail in their calling. He rather wants them, whether he is able to come or not, whether he, it's in person and he sees them, or whether it's through a messenger that comes to him or a letter, what he wants to hear is that they are standing firm in one spirit. He wants to hear that they're striving together for the faith of the gospel still. He wants to hear that their conduct is in accord with the gospel that their actions match up with what they say they believe. And he knows that if there's never a warning, that with obedience comes persecution. With holiness comes suffering. Okay, He knows that they will be terribly alarmed. And I think many, many people today in the American church end up alarmed because they have simply never been told suffering comes, opponents come, conflicts come when you begin to live a holy life. So because Paul knows those things are coming, of course he knows it through personal experience, and he's just been talking about it earlier in the chapter, the fact that he's in prison, and insisting over and over again that it is good, that it has been beneficial for his main goal, which is that the gospel would go out, that people would hear the good news and repent. And so what Paul does is he puts conflict at the center of the faith. He puts that suffering at the center. He sees how central it is to the gospel. What he ends up saying is that this struggle is a sign of our salvation. It's a sign of our salvation. Now, why do I say he puts conflict at the center of the faith? Why why do I say he makes it central to the gospel? Well, I I don't mean Paul makes it central to the gospel. What I mean is you can't have understood the gospel unless you understand that fighting and conflict and suffering are at the heart of it because the good news boils down in the end 
to the fact that Jesus died on the cross. Not that he avoided the cross, but that he died on the cross. We were reading in family devotions this week of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane and his prayer being, Your will be done, Father. Your will be done. If there's any way out of this, I would like a way out, but your will be done. And so this, in, here in that garden, you have Jesus demonstrating to us how we are to live holy lives in obedience to him, conducting ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel, right? He demonstrates it to us. If we are going to go out into the world, there is going to be suffering for us as little Christ followers, right? Christiani, that that insulting term. If we're going to go out behaving like him, we can expect the result to be the same. And so, how do you deal with the fact then that immediately there is opposition? Immediately comes suffering. Immediately comes conflict. Opponents. Paul says, look, that is a sign of our salvation. The fact that you have to struggle with that is a sign that something is right. Something good is going on. Now you remember in the book of Acts uh, that Peter and John end up arrested. Um, You remember that the believers in Jerusalem suffer in various ways. You remember that Paul and his companions end up suffering, being thrown in jail, being beaten, all of these things. And you also remember that they rejoice that they were counted worthy to suffer for the name of Christ, right? They rejoice that they were counted worthy. Worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. Suffering is... uh, painful. And there's no avoiding the fact that it's painful. It is not something that we should be seeking. We don't attempt to hurt ourselves, right? As a matter of fact, we can pray and must pray in the model of Jesus Christ that God would take this cup from us and yet not our will, but his will be done. And yet, when the suffering comes, we can rejoice that we have been counted worthy to suffer for his name. How do those things go together? Well, they go together the same way they did in the disciples' lives, in Paul and the other apostles, 
It goes together the same way that it did in Jesus' life, who was unwilling to make the compromises, unwilling to take the actions that would lead away from the will of God, even though he knew it was straight towards suffering and death. So Peter takes his sword in the garden, right, and says, I'll strike one for the team, you know. They're not arresting you, Jesus. And Jesus stops him and says, you know, if it was really about avoiding suffering, if it was really about not letting them hurt me or us, you know there's 12 legions of angels I could call on, right? And you know that when one angel shows up, they always have to say to everybody there, don't be afraid. So, And you, and you know that a legion is 6,000 soldiers in the Roman army at that time? 12 legions of angels? I mean, it's... <laughs> Whoa, boy. And yet, God's will be done. Are you willing to suffer for the name of Christ? Are you willing to suffer because you conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel? So to conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel leads straight into being counted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus Christ. You see how that progression works? And you think, okay, great. That's really a a strong encouragement to be obedient. If I say, you know, hey, good news. If you obey, suffering is going to come from it. That's not typically what we want to hear when we talk about obedience, is it? Don't we want to hear about the reward? Yeah, there's going to be, you'll be counted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus Christ. This is why the red pen just needs to come out, right? (laughs) And yet, Paul, Paul does not want them to be alarmed. That is why he will not avoid this topic. He does not want them to be alarmed. And he wants them to remember that this is Suffering is central to the gospel. That we are to take up our crosses daily and follow him. And a few of those crosses that we take up are opponents, suffering, conflict. So let's talk about opponents for a second. Obviously these things weave in and out of each other, right? They overlap and relate to one another. But when you think of opponents, what do you think of? I mean, generally speaking, not in the Christian faith, I think we think of sports, right? Your opponent. The one that you are in, you know, competition with. It might be the 
the other person on the track team that you're always, you know, which one of you is going to get that? Are you going to be in front of him or is he going to be in front of you? Or it might be the other team. I love the Brian Regan routine. I, don't, I just can't ever get it out of my mind when I think of opponents. Beat the, beat the opponent soundly, you know. Some of you aren't into sports, and that's why it's like, you know, why is he talking about sports? Okay, so if you think of opponents, what do you think of? Opponents. Well, some of you have, uh, forget sports, something much more serious, someone who is your competitor in life, who makes life miserable for you in school because they're always trying to beat you. They are your opponent. They don't celebrate with you when you get an A, but they compare scores to see who got the 95 and who got the 96. Your competitor. Paul is talking about opponents here when he says, in no way alarmed by your opponent's He's talking about people who are opponents in the faith. What does that look like to have an opponent in the faith? Well, it's people who don't want you to live in a manner that is worthy of the gospel. And I always bring this up. You don't have to say anything about the fact that you're a Christian to have your actions be very irritating to people who are not Christians. All you have to do is act in a way that reveals their sin by not engaging in it yourself. The moment that you begin to do that, they're going to be an opponent to you. They want you to join them in wickedness. Now, what would that wickedness be? Well, sometimes it's lying so that everybody can leave work early and get paid for that extra time still. You know, other times it is uh, not leaving early, but just being lazy. So nobody shows up anybody else by being a hard worker and everybody's allowed to be lazy. Other times it's embezzling, you know, hey, everybody's got to be on, everybody's got to be in on this. One person who's not in on it, it risks everybody getting in trouble, right? Other times... <clears throat> It is uh, gossiping. You know, nothing kills a gossip circle better than someone who's unwilling to engage in it, right? There's a saying, 
it's not coming to mind right now, but, you know, a gossip can only be a gossip if there's people who are willing to listen, right? And so, walking away turns them into an opponent. Men are not our only opponents, though. You remember that we are told that our, re- our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, right? Of this present darkness. And so when we think of living a holy life, and we think, here is the area where I fail over and over again to live in a manner that is worthy of the gospel. Here is the place where I need to change my behavior. A lot of the time, what we think of is not the person that gets us back into it. Sometimes it is, right? We know bad company corrupts good morals, and so there is that person. What I really need to do if I want to, if I want to stop doing drugs is stop hanging around with my supplier, right? Sometimes it is a person that is always getting you back into the same sin, but an awful lot of the time it is not a person, but it's internal to us. And we realize it's coming up out of, it's bubbling up out of our hearts, but we also feel and see intuitively a lot of the time the, the connection to this, this power, this external principality that is, uh, that is working against us. Causing there to be stumbling blocks laid in front of our feet. Temptations that are completely unexpected, out of the blue, and perfectly tailored to cause us to fall at that moment. That's not a coincidence. And this is why we cannot fight our opponents on our own. And I don't just mean that there must be that unity of fellowship that Paul is going to go into, but that we must fight by the power of the Holy Spirit. That we must fight if we're going to have opponents that are seeking to cause us to stumble rather than to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. We're going to have to put on the full armor of God. Not a couple of pieces today and a couple of pieces tomorrow, because after all, all that armor gets kind of heavy. But all of it. And just like it isn't a coincidence that that temptation that comes is perfectly matched to make you stumble today, okay? So it is also not a coincidence when there is a way of escape right then. 
Because God has promised that he will not allow us to be tempted beyond what we are able. But with temptation, he provides a way of escape. And so, boy, it's a good thing we're not alone in in this struggle against principalities and powers, is it? Opponents aren't the only problem that we are going to face. We're also going to face suffering, though. And just like there are opponents that are visible right in front of our eyes, flesh and blood, that you can see them and and see, ah, we are at odds. This is a problem. So suffering can be very physical. But there is also suffering that is much more uh, internal, spiritual, just like there are attacks and opponents. So what of suffering... that comes from the outside. Accusations, slander. You can think of people who have lost jobs because of lies being told about them, because they are Christians. Think of others who have been demoted. because of their Christian behavior, because they are conducting themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. And so this is, yeah, it comes typically from an opponent, but that opponent doesn't just do things and then we laugh. The opponent does things and then we suffer. Other suffering comes from the inside. Doubts, fears, depressions. And combining that principalities and powers with the wickedness of our heart, accusations again, coming from the inside and from the outside, coming from Satan, that accuser, And meeting, of course, with what we know of our own hearts. Seeing the truth of his accusations and yet needing to remember the liar that he is, the father of lies, a murderer from the beginning, one who is seeking to use those accusations to twist the truth of God, to cause us to be hopeless, to turn us away from the faith, rather than to drive us to repentance, right? What a wicked opponent. What a sneaky, sneaky accuser he is. What suffering he causes. 
Now think about this. The order that we have them here is opponents, suffering, and then conflict. And I think if we left off conflict, if we could just even leave off the conflict, some of us might be happy. Like, you know, I know that there's going to be opponents and I know that there's going to be suffering. As long as I just don't have to fight, if I can just suffer through it, it'll be good. But no, conflict. With opponents and suffering comes the conflict. Attacks against us lead us into conflict. We are in a conflict when Satan makes accusations against us. We must resist him firm in our faith. That's conflict. We have to resist. There's no avoiding it. Even when Paul is grateful, even when Paul is celebrating the benefits that have come from this opposition, that have come from him being arrested, from him being put in prison, even with all of that, we still see that it is a conflict and that Paul is engaging in that conflict through his writing the letter to the Philippians. Because he sees that the people are going to be discouraged by the work that Satan has accomplished through having him arrested. And therefore, he buckles down and starts writing a letter. He starts writing a letter because he is engaged in the conflict Now, the temptation with these three things, with opponents, physical and spiritual, with suffering inside and outside, with conflict, the temptation is to be alarmed by these things and to see them as proof that we're doing something wrong. But God, through his apostle Paul, tells us that on the contrary, not only are we to not be alarmed, but rather we are to remember that this is a sign of the salvation God has given us. It's a sign. A sign is something that you're supposed to look at and be informed by, right? It's supposed to remind you. Sometimes we like to put signs up in our house, right? A little verse over the sink. Why? To remind you not to hate your children, for example, right? Or you put a sign up on the door so that you're going to see it in the morning before you go out. Why? So that you remember to take the trash out. Here this is, the suffering itself, the opponents, the opposition, the conflict. What is it? It's a sign of our salvation. But of course, that's not what he says first, is it? 
the first thing that he says is it is a sign of destruction for them, for our opponents. Again, with the negativity, (laughs) Paul just doesn't seem to get it, but he does. Why do we need to be reminded that it is a sign of their destruction? Well, there's several reasons. One of them is so that we will remember to pray for them. Seeing that they are on the road to destruction, we should be filled with compassion. We should love our enemies and we should pray for them that they might be saved. Again, remember Paul. Some of his opponents, some of his enemies are out there free. Others of them are, you know, the suffering, the ones that are causing suffering are the soldiers that are keeping him in prison, right? He wants them all to hear the gospel. But more than that, He wants us to remember it's a sign of destruction for them because they are not fighting ultimately against us, but against God. And so what he's saying is, look, their fight is hopeless. Their fight leads to their destruction. Them fighting against you is them fighting against God, and there is no one who fights against God successfully. And remember, Paul has personal experience with this. Back when he was Saul, on the road to Damascus, what does Jesus say to him? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? What was Saul doing? He was going and persecuting the believers, By going and persecuting the believers, he is attacking Jesus. And that's what he's bringing out here. He's saying, look, this is a sign of their destruction. Their fighting is not with you. They will not succeed in their fight. Paul may die. He's just gotten done saying that, right? But his opponents are not a sign of his destruction, The conflict that they have, even if they kill Paul, they will not win in the conflict. The more damage they do, the the bigger the sign it is of their destruction. And what is their destruction? We read of the cup of the wrath of God earlier in this service in Isaiah. They're piling up judgments on themselves. This is not something that we should rejoice in, right? And yet, we ought to see clearly 
and remember. It doesn't matter if they fight against us. It doesn't matter if they succeed, if they win. Even that, even that accuser, the devil, Satan, cannot win. Even him opposing us is a sign of his destruction. Because he also will one day be cast into the lake of fire. And so it's after you see that. It's after you see, those are the two choices. Opposing God or conducting yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. It's after you see to oppose is to, to fight against Christians, to fight against their, their obedience, is to simply confirm your destruction. It's after you see that, that all of a sudden you see. And so it's, and so it's a sign of us, for us, of our salvation. Because to have God's enemies opposing you is to remind you, you're on the right side. You're on the winning side. There is hope for a future in heaven with God for his people. Let us now conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. And let's not be ashamed. Let's not be worried. Let's not be alarmed when opposition comes. And let us not allow it to silence us, to cause us dismay or despair, but instead to say, your will be done, and then to rejoice that we have been counted worthy to suffer for his name's sake. Let's pray.